Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Himalaya. Welcome to this special episode of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers. We're here to bring you the super tools of economics to help you transform your life and see the world ever more clearly. Today, we're joined by Larry Summers, who is by any measure one of the most influential economists of the world. Larry, welcome to Think Like an Economist. Glad to be with you. Look, there's so much we could talk about, but really what I want to do is spend the first part of the show talking about, you know, how does an economist work as a public policymaker? Because you, more than so many others, have done that. And then I want to come back to your one big idea. In the second part of the show, we'll talk about secular stagnation. When we thought about what we wanted to talk to you about, we really thought secular stagnation is this big global idea. But it seemed to me like it was a good idea to start from the beginning and how you got to thinking about big global policy macro ideas. And that's why I wanted to start with sort of your career as a policy economist, not just as an academic economist. A bit of background for our listeners. If you can point at a public policy institution, Larry's been part of it. He's a professor at Harvard. He then went on to be chief economist at the World Bank, worked in the Clinton Treasury and became secretary of the Treasury, and then returned briefly to civilian life until the world exploded once again with the financial crisis. And you went to become President Obama's chief economist as director of the National Economic Council. Academic economists, I think, often do have something to learn when they go in the policy domain. What were some of the big lessons for you, Larry, when you went from Harvard to Washington? There are a lot of differences. One is that in the academic world, if a problem is too hard, what you do is you work on a different problem. And you don't have that luxury when you're in policy. You have to deal with the problems that come before you. I think the other thing that I learned in government, two other things I actually learned in government. One was that it was very important to propose a course of action rather than to just point up an aspect of a problem. That you had to be able to say like, okay, it's very complicated and there's an enormous amount you don't know. But to not decide is to decide to do nothing. And that is a decision. And so you have to be for a course of action. One of the things you have to realize when you're in government is how complex the problems are. And what I always tried so hard to do was to start with an economic model, whether it was supply and demand or whether it was price exceeding marginal costs for a monopolist, to start from that and think about what that suggested was the right thing to do, and then think about all the nuances and specifics of the particular context as I 
made a policy proposal and pushed for its implementation. And I came to realize that people who didn't follow the most straightforward policy recommendation that would come out of a wonderful textbook like the one you, Betsy, and Justin have written, usually doing that because they were stupid and they just didn't understand what was in the textbook, but they had their own very specific interests and they were being responsive to their specific concern, which might be different than uh, the general economic welfare that we tend to emphasize in economics classes. I also recognize that in Washington, in any kind of policy work, you're making judgments with enormous uncertainty. So make the best judgments you can and then go forward. You also have to be prepared to change your mind because your thinking has to evolve with the changing world. Larry, I wanted to draw you out on a couple of these things. One thing you said was that, you know, sometimes the reason why people are suggesting different policies or different positions is simply because they're following a narrower set of interests. But in fact, they're sort of told to, they're representing small business, they're representing advocates, they're representing labor. And I think there are groups that get left out when that happens. Did you see that? Do you think that the system is like well-designed for the public interest to bubble up to write policy? Betsy, first I'd say it's an old truism that where you stand depends on where you sit. If you're the Secretary of Labor, it's not your job to have an objective opinion on what trade unions are saying. It's your job to be the voice of trade unions. If you're the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, it's your job to be for a smaller budget deficit, not to be for a larger budget deficit. I think having institutionalized representation of multiple points of view is basically a good way to structure a deliberative process. The economics profession tends to see itself as a group of noble, disinterested people. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. My view as an economist in government tended to be that I should try to say what was true and what was the best thinking about the consequences of other actions, and that it was probably right that political figures made the decisions. This was a lesson that I sort of learned pretty early in my time in the Treasury Department. One of my responsibilities was being involved in the oversight of the IRS. And it was the view of the IRS that a certain office that employed 40 people in a small town in South Dakota should be closed because it really wasn't efficient to have an office that small. And that made sense to me. I thought they were right. On the other hand, that small town was the birthplace and continuing residence of the majority leader of the United States Senate. 
And it was the judgment of people above me that the gain of efficiency was far less beneficial than the lost ability to do important things that would come from alienating the Senate majority leader by doing something that was devastating to his hometown. And you have to make a judgment. Do you think that that's kowtowing to a special political interest? Or do you think that that's acting in a principled way in a complex environment so as to best achieve progressive objectives? And I was someone who made my peace with that and in general recognized that goodwill was an important part of getting things done. And therefore, you had to make political compromises. Others felt themselves to be impure whenever they came to a decision like that. And I respect that perspective. It's probably the case that academics who feel that it's impure to make compromises of that kind are going to have a lower ceiling on the levels of position they reach in government than those who have the kind of perspective that I just described. Well, Larry, I was going to ask you what you think holds economists back from actually participating more fully in public policy, but I think you just answered that question. But Betsy, I think it's important to recognize that economics has been stunningly successful as a discipline in influencing public policy in a way that no other social science discipline has come remotely close, whether it's the fact that central bank decision-making is dominated by macroeconomists, whether it is work on labor markets and debates about minimum wages, which are all about econometric studies. I think what's extraordinary is the extent to which economic ideas have infused so many areas of policy. Paul Samuelson, one of your predecessors as the writer of a great economics textbook, famously said that I'll let somebody else be the finance minister of the country if I can write the economics textbook that all its future leaders read when they're in college. And I think he was speaking the truth about the incredible importance of economic ideas. And indeed, even in the areas where science is very important, economists have had a much larger influence on thinking about what we're going to do about pollution than atmospheric scientists. And so it's really an extraordinary bit of good fortune to be involved or even to have the opportunity to study economics. I hear you on um, the great privilege and joy of being an economist, but with that comes a burden. You know, I watched you as one of the chief firefighters during the Asian financial crisis, and I watched you come back again during the most recent financial crisis in 2008, and you've been very vocal again during the pandemic. These things we're arguing about, they're not abstract ideas. They're policies that will shape millions of people's lives. And I wonder, really at a personal level, Larry, how that feels. 
you know, you go to the office, you do the best you can, but you've got to go home and think, crikey, what did I just do? I think all one can do is do one's best and try to be as careful and thoughtful in the advice one gives and the decisions one makes as you can be. And the core realization that I had that cemented me in my desire to be an economist was the recognition that a great doctor sees dozens of patients and hopefully helps many of them. And that an economist who changes with some idea the unemployment rate by one-tenth of one percent is the difference between 100,000 families seeing their breadwinner be without work and not be without work. And so the scale of the contribution one can make as an economist is that much larger. But I think the medical analogy is helpful. A surgeon who is consumed with the moral responsibility of their craft to the point of being paralyzed is not going to be a very good surgeon. One needs to take the responsibility seriously, but at the same time, one has to be prepared to move forward and to have opinions and to accept the fact that not all the judgments are going to work out right. But yes, there were moments when I was terribly fearful that I had given the wrong advice. And you just have to accept it and do the best you can. And you also have to accept that you are one part of the system, that unless you've been elected, which I certainly wasn't, ultimate decision-making doesn't rest with you. And so the best you can do is argue your side vigorously and then let the person who's supposed to decide, the president, make his or her decision. Yes, Larry, knowing when to back down is actually kind of important. And I I was going to just tell you that it reminds me, I quote you on this all the time because I thought it's the funniest quote I've ever heard, which you said, um, sometimes when you hear the political advisors give economic advice, you're reminded to be humble when you give political advice. (laughs) Exactly. One of the things I always try to do is give people a degree of confidence in the opinion that I'm expressing. And, you know, tell them whether I'm very confident I'm right or whether something corresponds to my best guess and to recognize that there's a difference between those situations. Larry, before we move on, I actually just want to turn this a little bit more to the economics because financial crises have been, you know, obviously important. The 2008 recession was a financial crisis, and it took us a decade to really recover from it. You also, as Justin mentioned, were at the forefront of many other financial crises in the 90s. 
Do you think that we've learned a lot from those financial crises so that global financial systems are more stable today than they otherwise would be? I think it's like airplane safety. Every time there's a crash, we learn something about a way a crash can happen and we fix it. And there's a trend towards the world getting better and safer. But we also develop bigger, faster airplanes, and that comes with some risks. And sometimes after a long period when things go well, people can become complacent and they can become sloppy. And I think that's the right way to think about financial crises as well. We put in place after the 2008 financial crisis a variety of desirable steps in the so-called Dodd-Frank legislation. But I think it would be a big mistake to think we've seen the last major financial crisis or that there aren't important elements of excessive leverage and risk-taking. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What I want to do now is dig into one big idea, and you've had lots of big ideas, Larry, but... Certainly, your most important in the past decade is an idea called secular stagnation, which always struck me as a funny turn of phrase. So for our listeners, what is secular stagnation? I did not coin the phrase secular stagnation, and I'm not sure that I would have coined the phrase secular stagnation to describe this particular set of ideas. A Harvard economist writing in the late 1930s, Alvin Hansen proposed that it might be that at certain moments that economies had a very strong propensity to save because large amounts of income were going to people who were wealthy, because corporations were earning substantial profits, because people were very fearful about the future. And then at the same time, there was a very high propensity to save that for some set of reasons, perhaps because there weren't a lot of cutting edge new ideas that needed new equipment to implement, perhaps because the cost of capital goods had become very cheap, that there was only a limited demand for investment. And so if you had a high desire to save, but there wasn't that much desire to put that money to work, what would happen was that the interest rate would tend to fall to very low levels. And 
that the savings would, because there wasn't a lot of new investment to do, would flow into existing assets. And so their prices would be bid way up. And so you would see economies with very low interest rates, with a lack of demand, which meant they didn't grow very fast, and that they had a tendency to have too slow inflation and not much pressure upwards on prices. And that that could be a fairly frequent and congenital condition for economies. He proposed that theory in the late 1930s. It got blown out of the water, not because it was a wrong theory, but because conditions changed by World War II, and it largely got forgotten. And as I looked at the world six or seven years ago, when we were recovering very slowly from the 2008 financial crisis, when we were running very large budget deficits, the Fed was keeping interest rates at zero, and yet the economy was very, very sluggish, and asset prices, the stock market and so forth, were way high. It seemed to me to fit Hansen's description. And so I started talking about this as a concern. And when Hansen coined the term secular stagnation, he was trying to capture the idea that it wasn't a matter of a recession, but a general tendency for the economy to be stagnant, coming out of lack of demand. And I think that is a very powerful way of understanding the economic performance of the last decade throughout the industrialized world where we were short on demand, no place had 2% inflation, and growth was pretty slow relative to what was expected, even with interest rates very low and budget deficits very big. I think that COVID left to its own devices, if it was just COVID, that by creating lots of uncertainty, making people feel like they had to save more for emergencies, creating more uncertainty for businesses, potentially exacerbated that situation. What has been done in the short run in the United States was by far the largest fiscal program in the country's peacetime history. We've, over the years 2020 and 2021, we're going two-thirds or three-quarters of the way to doing what was done during World War II. So that's an extraordinary level of spending and support. It's one that means that right now our problem is not that we don't have enough demand. Our problem is not when we're running an 18% of GDP government deficit that we have too much saving. But It's not a permanent solution, and I suspect it will have various costs and risks. And when this particular period ends, it will be very important to assess where we are. But there's certainly a reasonable prospect that secular stagnation will have returned. So, Larry, I think our listeners would find this helpful if we could put it in some sort of supply and demand framework. 
central to your story there, the real interest rate becomes really low. And so what is the supply and demand that determines the real interest rate? And then why would that have become particularly low? So I think there are two supply and demand diagrams that are essential to understanding secular stagnation. The first is in the market for funds. There are people who save, they're the suppliers, and there are people who demand, they are the demanders. And if the demand for funds falls and the supply of funds rises, then what you know is that the price of funds, which is the interest rate, is going to fall. And when that happens, depending on just how that balance works, very likely the quantity of investment will decline as well. And when you think about what macroeconomists think about, which isn't so much the supply and demand curve, but the level of aggregate demand, the level of total demand in the economy, that will be low. And then the multiplier will operate and the accelerator will operate. And those will operate in the direction of reducing the economy and reducing the economy's scale. And then the other key relationship that people often study is the Phillips curve, which says that when there's less demand relative to the economy's potential, there's a tendency to low inflation or even to declining inflation. So start with the market for funds. That helps understand what happens with respect to the interest rate. And then if you look at what's happening to the quantity of investment in demand, then you look at what's happening to the inflation process. And that's reinforced by the fact that when inflation comes down and the interest rate can't fall below zero, then the real interest rate, the interest rate adjusted for inflation, is actually going up. And when that takes place, the result is a further reduction in the demand for investment, which keeps the whole process going. actually wanted to pivot just a little bit to, I think, one sort of last big global issue that I do think ties a little bit to secular stagnation. When you were Treasury Secretary in the 1990s, budget deficits were coming down. In fact, you oversaw budget surplus. National debt was coming down. And now we're seeing global debt surge. Do you have a different view about debt today than you had in the 1990s? And are you worried about the amount of debt that countries are taking on? Look, I think you have to make judgments in the context of moments. When President Clinton came into office, the United States had very slow productivity growth that was linked to lack of investment. And when you tried to find out why there was a lack of investment, the answer had a great deal to do with high costs of capital and interest rates that at some points were in the range of 7% that made many businesses say it was just too expensive to borrow and invest. And so the idea that by bringing down interest rates, you could stimulate investment 
was, I think, a very strong and right idea at that time. I think in the current era, when interest rates are essentially zero, when stock prices are extremely high, there's really no business anywhere that's not making investments because the cost of capital is too high. And so the idea that reducing government debt in order to bring down interest rates or reducing government debt because it's compounding too fast, I don't think those are very compelling ideas at the current moment. And I think the more compelling idea is that there isn't enough demand and the government borrowing and spending is what's called for. So I think we need to think about fiscal policy in the context of the current economy very differently than the way we thought about fiscal policy during the 1990s. Does that mean that it's a good idea to be running an 18% of GDP deficit in a rapidly recovering economy? No, it probably doesn't, in my view. Does that mean that any level of deficit is a good idea? No, it doesn't. But I do think we need to be considerably less alarmist about budget deficits than we were a couple of decades ago. To sort of end our conversation on on secular stagnation, what do we need to do to get out of that sort of secular stagnation slump? Is it only about government spending? I think there are a number of aspects. I think when private investment is short, we should pick up public investment. And whether it is in greening the economy, whether it is in providing inducements for there to be broadband access for everybody, we've seen how important that is during the COVID period. I think support for public investment is something that's absolutely essential. I think if we can strengthen our systems of social insurance, it's much better that we have collective insurance than that everybody insure for themselves by saving. And so whether it's insurance against displacement, insurance against healthcare catastrophes, insurance against old age, we should be thinking about strengthening our systems of social insurance so that people are able to spend more and have less need to save. I think it's kind of ironic that so much of the savings flows from poor countries to rich countries. And if we were able to channel more of that savings from rich countries to poor countries, then we would be exporting more. And that would be an important source of demand. What secular stagnation teaches is that a central macroeconomic problem is absorbing all the savings. And that if you don't absorb all the savings, you will tend to have higher unemployment than you need to. And you'll tend to have Asset prices bid up to the sky, which will tend to reward the rich at the expense of everyone else. Larry, we've called our podcast Think Like an Economist because we think that learning economics gives our listeners an incredibly powerful toolkit. You've spoken to that already today. Can you say a little bit about what you think it means to think like an economist? I think it means to recognize that everything is a trade-off, that you do one thing, you can't do another thing. I think that's probably the most important thing it means to think like an economist. 
I think it also means to think that things don't always happen because of a plan and a direction, but they often happen because of the invisible hand of the marketplace or some other mechanism. It means understanding the benefits of competition and the importance of incentives. People don't always understand it. So uh, for the sake of our listeners, why do you think it will actually help to learn to think like an economist? I think they'll think more clearly, whether it's what kind of mortgage to take or whether to buy or lease a car or whether to vote one way or the other way to cause them to live a prosperous life. It lets you explain a huge amount about the natural world. Larry, I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us today for Think Like an Economist. And I think every time I talk, you teach me a little bit more about how to become a little bit better of an economist too. Yes, Larry, thank you. It was a pleasure talking today. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.